that personally because good morning, everyone. Welcome to the one year anniversary. <laughs> Christina and I were talking this morning and we were saying that this year has been, oh, I guess that's locked, hey, better than we would have hoped. And uh, a big part of that, and I don't mean that like we had low expectations, okay? <laughs> we thought it was going to be awful, but it's been fair to Midland, you know? <laughs> no, 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 it's been really good. And what I wanted to say is that that is largely thanks to all of you. And so thank you. Thank you for being an amazing group of people that we have had the privilege to begin getting to know. We look forward to much more to come. Uh, and I, I think it's really cool that on the one year, we get to start a new series and jump into the book of Exodus. Um, I'm really excited to spend a little while, we'll be doing this till Advent, so I forget, if it's, I think it's 10 weeks, I want to say, um, in the book of Exodus, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And we start out today, and I get to begin retelling the story of Exodus. So if you saw in the email blast, or you looked in the bulletin, you know that we're going to do the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. Don't worry, I'm not going to have you stand while we read all four chapters. Um, there will be some standing for the reading of Scripture. It'll come a little bit later than we're used to, but it's just going to be a portion. And, um, and so I want to retell. I'm going to spend a lot of time this morning just retelling these first four chapters. And as, as we prepare for that, there are three things I want to be clear about before we begin. First of all, it's not my story. I am retelling it. And I'm retelling it in order to highlight for us as modern readers, some of the things that are easy to miss. There's things that are easy to miss because of culture. We live in a very different world than the ancient Israelites did in Egypt. There's things that are easy to miss because of language, right? So there's stuff that the author of Exodus wants us to see, and it's very clear in Hebrew, which is really helpful to all of us who are fluent in Hebrew, and I'm not one of them. Um, and so that's another thing I want to highlight. There's stuff in the structure and in the patterns that aren't clear because we're not used to reading that way. When we read in English, we read mostly for plot and character, right? And we have these story structures. You know, you've got the introduction and rising action and all these kind of things. And if it's been a long time since you were in high school, you don't remember all that stuff. But that's our normal story structure. That's not the case in the Old Testament. The Hebrew literature that you find in the Old Testament is written with different kinds of structures. And so I want to retell it to highlight some of these things along the way. And as I'm doing that, I just want to give credit where credit is due. There's um, four different authors and scholars who have helped me a ton. Authors of Salehame, Exodus, and on the Pentateuch that have been awesome. Um, and I wouldn't be able to retell the story very well if it wasn't for their help. Um, so I'm retelling the story of Exodus. It's not my story. It is God's story. God is the great author of this tale. And that brings me to points two and three that I want to be clear about before we begin. First of all, because, or first of all, point two, because God is the great author of this tale, it's a true story. And I don't just mean that it's history. It's that, but it's much more. Um, it's a story of God taking his people up out of Egypt with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand, with acts of judgment and miraculous signs, and then he leads them towards the promised land. And along the way, in the midst of these events, it's also a story of who God is and who we are and who we're called to be. It's a story that not only reveals what happened those many thousands of years ago, but also a lot of what still happens today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Thirdly, because God is the great author of this tale, it is a tale of freedom. And I need to be clear about what that means, because when God is involved, you'll find a tale of true freedom. Many people in many places get deceived as to what freedom means. Our own particular modern form of deception buys into the half-truth that freedom is freedom from constraint. It's freedom from anything that would stop you from pursuing your desires, making the choices you want to make, anything that would get in the way or limit or restrict you. Um, it's the, the idea that freedom is found in the maximization of choice in combination with the removal of any barricades. And this, we think, we, we seem to think as a culture, is true freedom, but it's not. It's only the first half of freedom. Freedom from, freedom from oppression and slavery and these kind of things, it's necessary. It's important. But if you stop there, then you haven't found freedom. You've found a borderland. You've found a no man's waste in between the country of slavery left behind and promised land ahead. You're not there yet. You're just beginning. And hanging out in that waste as if it was your destination is not freedom. In our day, people find themselves free from boredom only to be enslaved to distraction, free from prohibition only to be enslaved to addiction, free from repression only to be enslaved to lust, right? You look at all the freedoms that we feel like we've fought so hard to win and we've replaced them with new forms of just as debilitating slavery and oppression. But real freedom is not found in the freedom from something, as if we could be free from all things, as if that were even possible. Real freedom is not found in being unbound, but being bound to the right things, and more importantly, being, round, being bound to the right one. And this is clear from the very beginning of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses what he needs to say to Pharaoh. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let her go that she may worship me. That is, she is done serving you, Pharaoh. These are my people. They need to be free to serve me. And it's that freedom to. Freedom is not being about being masterless, but about having the right master. It's about being free to know and serve and worship and follow God. And so the Exodus tale is actually a story of two journeys, not one. First, God must take his people up out of Egypt then God must take Egypt up out of his people. The first journey is quick. It's relatively short. Ten plagues and one sea parting are all that separate God meeting Moses on the mountain from God meeting Israel on the mountain. The second journey is much more difficult. Forty years in the wilderness only begins to remove Egypt from the hearts of the people of Israel. And yet the journey that God wants to take them on is one from bondage to a king who claims to be a god, Pharaoh, into service to a god who desires to be their king. Pharaoh enslaved them against their will in harsh servitude. Yahweh invites them to submit voluntarily to his lordship. Pharaoh conscripts Israelites to build store cities with clay bricks so that he can store wealth for himself and his people. Yahweh asks his people to build a royal tent out of precious materials so that he may meet them and bless them abundantly. Getting there takes a long time, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a summary of lots of the book of Exodus. So let's go back to the beginning. The story of Exodus begins with one of those famous phrases that begins most true and good stories. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know one of those famous phrases? 
I wondered if someone would say that. No. The most famous and true beginning of a story begins with the word, and. Because there's only one story that begins within the beginning. Every other story after that starts with the word, and. Because it finds itself in the middle of the much longer story that God is writing. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. The author of Exodus knows how important this and really is. That we remember not only where we are, but what has come before. And so the first seven verses of the book of Exodus are a quotation from the book of Genesis. We get the genealogy from Genesis chapter 46. But that generation is gone. The Israelites have settled in Egypt, and there they have finally fulfilled the creation mandate. They are fruitful and multiply. They swarm and become exceedingly numerous. They grow strong, and the land is filled with them. Israel entered Egypt three and four generations out from Abraham. And if you remember the call of Abraham, God says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But by the time they get to Egypt in four generations, you've had one kid followed by two kids, followed by 12. It's not exactly numerous as the stars in the sky yet. They're off to a pretty slow start. But finally here in Egypt those promises begin to come true. At the same time, a new king, a new pharaoh has arisen in Egypt, and we're told he knows nothing of Joseph. He knows nothing of the history that binds Israel and Egypt together. And when he looks upon the growing Israelite population, he is afraid. And what comes next is a pattern born in Genesis 3, as what was meant as for a gift of life is turned into death. In Genesis 3, the snake comes into the garden and Adam and Eve eat from the one tree that is forbidden among all the trees in the garden. And the gift of a life of abundance becomes one of exile and hard work. Sin crouches at Cain's door in Genesis chapter 4 and Cain, giving in to the hiss of sin, murders his brother. The world finally recovers from the flood that comes in Noah's day and the people band together in the midst of a new creation to worship idols to pursue pride and fame in their own name. Again and again, life into death. Israel had come to Egypt in the person of Jacob and in the person of Joseph and turned Egypt into a place of life, food in the midst of famine, refuge in the midst of suffering, abundance in the midst of scarcity. Egypt and Israel flourish. But now a new Pharaoh has arisen, and in fear he looks upon the Israelites and says, let's deal shrewdly with these people. And you can almost hear the hiss of the snake in his words. Let us oppress the Israelites in cruel slavery. We'll see how they flourish then. Motivated by fear and by pride, he sets out to destroy the Israelites. In fact, he tries three times, and each time God thwarts his plan through women. Pharaoh enslaves them in cruel labor, but they flourish and multiply all the more. Even oppressed and enslaved, God keeps blessing them with children. God's blessing of his people will not be stopped by Pharaoh's curse. So Pharaoh summons the midwives, Shipra and Pua, and instructs them to kill all newborn baby Israelite boys. But they fear God even more than they feared Pharaoh, and they disobey him. 
And when he confronts them about this, they lie. Israelite women are vigorous. They're strong. They give birth before we get there. There's nothing we can do. Shepra and Pua, two women whose names we know when we don't even know the name of this Pharaoh, are blessed by God. Ironically, in exactly the way that Pharaoh is trying to stop the blessing, because they have many children and get households of their own. Pharaoh, though, is bound and determined to stop this. He is very much an anti-God figure in this story. Where God sends out humans to be fruitful and multiply, Pharaoh would put a stop to that. Where God is blessing, Pharaoh would curse. Where God is in the business of turning death into life, Pharaoh joins the long line of human beings who take up the business of turning life into death. And so finally, Pharaoh commands his own people to take up every Israelite baby boy and throw them into the Nile. Pharaoh's true nature is revealed in his actions, enslavement, exploitation, and infanticide, all in the name of nationalism and self-preservation. The Nile, which is the source of life for Egypt, both literally and within their own religion and mythology, is turned into a source of death. Pharaoh would turn that water into blood. It will be no surprise when the true God of all creation defeats Pharaoh at his own game. Again, God, through faithful women, thwarts Pharaoh's plans. It goes like this. Yohabed has a son, and she looks and sees, just as God did at the end of each day of creation, that he is good. She sees her good son, and like every mother, longs to keep her baby boy. For three months, she manages to hide him. But then she must build a papyrus ark and cast him upon the waters. And yes, you heard me right, it's not a basket, it's an ark. This is the Hebrew word used, an ark covered in bitumen and pitch, just as Noah's was. And she casts her unnamed child, this second Noah, upon the waters. Can you imagine the desperation of a mother who felt her only hope to save her baby boy was to throw him in the river? God, the great author himself, full of irony and humor, has better plans than we or she could imagine. Yohebed sends her son down the river to free him from Pharaoh's decree of death, and Moses ends up being pulled from the river by Pharaoh's own daughter. Miriam steps in and volunteers the boy's mother to help care for the child. You couldn't write a better story about this. She's hiding in the reeds, and she sees Pharaoh's daughter pull out her baby brother, and she jumps out and says, oh, I know someone who can help you with that, who can nurse him. Let me just introduce you to my mother. Yes, this time Pharaoh is defeated by Yohebed, Miriam, and the compassion of his own daughter. Perhaps he, like so many fathers, simply could not say no to his girl. The baby is drawn out of the reeds just as Israel will be rescued through the sea of reeds. The baby is drawn out of the water even as some drown, just as Israel will be later. And his, this becomes the defining feature of his identity as he is finally named, not by his own mother, but by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses, the drawn-out one. Miriam is the key witness to this event, just as she will be to the crossing of the Red Sea. And with Moses' adoption, he is instantly transformed from an oppressed slave into a royal son, just as Israel's exodus will transfer Israel from oppressed slavery into royal priesthood. Now, 40 years pass in the blink of an eye until Moses is stirred to action by the injustice afflicted upon his people, and he kills an Egyptian overseer. Word gets out, and he flees Egypt to the east, to the land of Midian, where he saves seven daughters of a Midianite priest and then draws water out from them, 
out for them. He marries one of these daughters, Zipporah, and settles in the land of Midian as a shepherd. Now, let me say all that in a different way. Moses notices the people of Israel and their suffering and has compassion and outrage for the injustice. He steps in and destroys an Egyptian, is forced to flee to the east where he takes up a staff to defend the innocent from evil shepherds and then provide water for them in the wilderness. Sound familiar? Sound like the Exodus journey in advance? Because it is. Moses walks an Exodus-shaped life long before the Exodus of Israel. He's sent on an Exodus as a baby boy, He goes on an exodus as a 40-year-old man, and later he will lead the nation on an exodus at 80. It's no coincidence that at just this moment, God shows up. We read at the end of Exodus chapter 2 that God hears the groaning of his people and remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not safe and distant. He responds to the groaning. He knows his people. He will keep his word. But first, another 40 years pass. And as Moses is taking his flock out into the mountains, he comes across a burning bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And he meets God there on the mountain in this holy place where he's told to take off his sandals. And the exodus of the nation of Israel can begin in his calling. This too is a foretaste of what is to come. God meets Moses on the same mountain he will meet Israel, in fire both times, with an invitation to come close, but not too close, as people hide their faces, see miraculous signs, and are called to a difficult obedience. Moses is, well, reluctant doesn't quite cover it. Not sure what word we should use for the way that Moses responds. He comes as close to saying no to God as you can without actually saying no. Ever watch a child when you tell them this far and no further and they toe up to that line and then put their foot over just a little bit to see how you respond? Yeah, that's pretty much Moses with God. I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Lord, who am I? Who am I that I should do this? And it's here that I want us to read. We're going to pick up right there where Moses asks, who am I? We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 12 to 22. So if you've got your phones, your Bibles, if you want to have it in front of you, great. It will be on the screen, and I am going to ask you to stand as we continue this story in Exodus chapter 3. Oh, can you jump to verse 12? That's okay. Just go ahead a couple slides. Oh, you can't hear me because your thing wasn't on. Can you jump to verse 12? (laughs) That's okay. So this is God responding to Moses' objection. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Well, then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. 
the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now Moses begins asking some questions, and he gets some incredible answers. Who am I to go? And God basically says, it's not about you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to be fighting the battle. I'm going to be setting you free. And then Moses says, okay, but who do I tell the people has sent me? They're going to ask me your name. What do I say? Tell them I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. And know this. You're going to speak to the people, and they will believe you. You're going to speak to the elders, and they will follow you. And you're going to speak to Pharaoh, and he won't, but I'll make him. And one of the most incredible things from my perspective as I read this is that God tells Moses that at the same time as he compels Pharaoh to release the Israelites by means of plagues, one after the other, as he destroys that nation, their crops, their livestock, their homes, and their firstborn sons. As he does that, at the same time, he's going to make the Egyptians so favorably disposed to the Israelites that as they leave, they will be richly blessed with gifts. That's hard work. And we'll talk about that next week, how God manages to do something so incredible. Moses, though, isn't done objecting. All of this amazing news, it's not enough for him. That's great, God, it sounds awesome, but what if they, do, what if they don't believe me? What if I go tell them all this stuff and they say, yeah, right. And so God gives Moses some signs. He says, if they don't believe your words, show them this. Turn this staff into a snake, into a sea monster. Turn your hand leprous and clean again. Take some of the water from the river and turn it into blood. They'll believe these signs. Oh, but God, I'm really bad at public speaking. I stutter. Nobody's going to want to listen to me. Moses says, God, who gives mortals their speech? If I can turn your hand leprous and clean and turn water into blood and lead the people out of Egypt, I can surely teach you to speak. And God says something that I still, I'm like, oh, I want that. He says, go, I will be with your mouth. (laughs) And finally, Moses is out of objections. And so he says what he's wanted to say the whole time. Lord, please send someone else. 
And now, finally, God gets angry. But he still gives him something that he's asked for. He says, I'll send your brother Aaron. He'll go with you. Now get out of here and don't forget your staff. (laughs) And so Moses goes. And God gives him his first message for Pharaoh. Israel's my firstborn son. Let him go that he may worship me. And thus begins the story of the Exodus. The story written by God, the great I am. And we're introduced in these four chapters to Yahweh, to the great I am. I am who I am, he says to Moses. It's an enigmatic and strange way to introduce yourself. Oh, I'm Andrew, nice to meet you. I am who I am. Of course you are, what's your name? (laughs) But it's a very deep and meaningful name. One of the strange things about this word in Hebrew is that it can be translated as, I was who I was. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. All three tenses are built into this name. All three tenses are built into how he introduces himself too. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I was. I was who I was. I'm the one who's going to free you from Egypt right now, and this is my name from now forevermore, past, present, and future. And the story that we just heard, those first chapter, four chapters of Exodus, rely on and build on those same three tenses and God's presence in each of them. You go back to the beginning of Exodus, and you're looking at a situation where any one of those Israelites would be fully understandable in sitting in the midst of slavery going, God, where are you? Like, what are you doing? 80 years, 80 years of cruel oppression and slavery that gets worse and worse. Prior to that, you go back to Genesis and you read the story, and God is meeting Israel in every generation. He's meeting Abraham, he's meeting Isaac, he's meeting Jacob, he's meeting Joseph. All of these people have close and incredibly powerful interactions with God, and they land in Egypt and it all stops. So, where's God? What's going on? Right? And you read those first two chapters, and, and God's there, he blesses the midwives who stand up to Pharaoh. He's there, he's he's blessing the people. They're being fruitful and multiplying no matter what the circumstances are. Um, But he's not doing what they must have wanted. And the way that Exodus deals with this is by pointing us back again and again and again. The whole first two chapters of Exodus are filled with references to Genesis. And I hope you caught that as I retold the story. Filled with echoes of what came before. Because when we're caught in the midst of a situation and we wonder what are you doing, God? One of the things we have to do is remember how we got there and remember how God has been faithful in the past so that we can trust that he will continue to be faithful in the present and in the future. God hasn't changed. And so there's this word of hope built into the I was who I was that hasn't changed. The whole first four chapters don't just look back, though. They look ahead. God is the God who's got a plan. He's the God of what is to come as well as what was in the past. And so we read about the exodus-shaped life of Moses. Nobody would have, nobody sitting down and planning, like, we're going to pick out the next leader of the nation of Israel. You know what we should really do? Have him raised as an Egyptian prince. That'll be great. Right? Like, we don't, and then, and then we'll kick him out of the country for 40 years so he's not even with his people. Like, you would never plan this. And yet it fits so well. 
By being in Pharaoh's household, he has a different perspective on the injustice suffered by the people of Israel, such that he is the one who sees it and is outraged. By being sent out into the wilderness, he is being prepared to lead the people in the same way. By the time he's got his staff leading the people through the wilderness, he knows how it works out there. He's lived there for 40 years. None of the rest of the people of Israel would have that knowledge, having been slaves in Egypt for more than a generation. God is going ahead, and God is preparing the way. And in the same way that you can look at where you are now and say, God, what are you doing, and feel hopeless because it's awful and it's not what you wanted, but find hope by remembering the past of where God has been in your life and how he has brought you into that place. You can trust that what you're going through will be used for good in his hands. It is good. Thank you. (laughs) You really can trust that. I don't know what Moses would have thought. Like, can you, you know, I asked you through the story, can you imagine what it would be like to be a mother throwing your, your son into the waters? Can you imagine what Moses would have, what it would have been like for him to go from the opulent life of an Egyptian prince to being a shepherd in the Midian wasteland? Like, I don't know what he was thinking in that time. I wonder if he had any kind of trust and hope. Maybe he didn't. God doesn't rely on us having that, but we can have it when we know who God is. So God is the author of the tale. He was who he was. He will be who he will be. God also is who he is. I am who I am, he says. And we see this in the story too. It's good news, but fearful when God is present in our midst. And he is present in our midst. He meets Moses on the mountain and he says, don't come any closer and get your shoes off. This is holy ground. God is holy and all-powerful. We need to walk with him. It's good news if we're beside him. It's bad news if we stand against him. It's good news for the soft-hearted, even those who seem to have a soft head like Moses when he's called by God and just keeps saying, no, no, no. It's still good news. It's bad news for the hard-hearted, for those stuck in pride and rebellion. God is a God full of grace. He initiates the rescue of Israel. He leads his people into his kingdom. He completely without their earning or deserving it, This is grace, but it's not cheap grace, as God will demand from Israel exclusive and total obedience. This incredibly important revelation in the book of Exodus is found in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It's the most quoted Old Testament verse within the Old Testament itself. It goes like this, the Lord, the Lord God, and that's the name, Yahweh, Yahweh God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving devotion and truth. Maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means excuse the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, and he will surely punish the wicked. We'll run into this two parts of the truth of who God is, his incredible grace to the thousandth generation, but also his true justice in punishing the wicked and the evildoer, again and again in the book of Exodus. And you, you find that first little piece of it in a strange little story at the end of Exodus chapter 4. Moses is, is heading back to Egypt, and his family is still with him for this part of the journey. And they stop for the night, and God comes out to kill him. We don't even know who the him is. It's either Moses or his firstborn son. 
It's not clear. Moses had failed to circumcise his sons. He had failed in the one and only major covenant obligation that all Israelites had lived under since the time of Abraham. The law hasn't been given yet. There's nothing else. There's just this one thing. Circumcise your children. His disobedience is about to lead to the same punishment as the disobedience of Pharaoh. Moses, though chosen to be the leader, is not exempt from the requirements that God lays upon his people. He's also not exempt from the grace and mercy of God. The story doesn't tell us how they know what was going on or what was wrong, but they did. And Moses' disobedience is covered over by yet another wise woman in our story. In a small reversal of the fateful moment in the garden, Zipporah is obedient where her husband is not, and disaster is averted. God is a God of grace and a God of justice. And the God who was and is and is to come is still God today. He is the great author of our tales, just as he was the nation of Israel. And any one of us, like Zipporah, can repent and walk with God. And God longs to walk with each of us, as he does with his people in the Exodus, into freedom, into true freedom, leading us out of bondage and oppression to the many slave masters of this world and into the glorious freedom of being bondservants of Jesus Christ, if we will but turn to him and walk in obedient faith. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving devotion and truth. I thank you that you forgive, but that you also do not let the wicked go free, that we can turn to you and find freedom, or we can turn from you, and we can face a fearful, holy, and powerful warrior who will free his people. Lord, I pray that each of us, wherever we're at today, would hear this story and find hope in you. I pray for those of us here today who, like the Israelites in slavery, are wondering where you are. Remind us of our history with you. Remind us of your faithfulness and grace and goodness. Remind us of the many times you've come through in the past. And give us eyes to see and ears to hear the plan you have for us ahead. Instill in us trust, Lord God, and faith that we know you are good, that we know you are present. Lord, for those of us who are in a position like Moses, who have some kind of intentional disobedience in our lives, lead us into repentance and bring into our lives people like Zipra, who can walk, us, walk beside us in that, Lord God, who can help us to see where we've gone wrong and help us to turn back to you. And for all of us, we pray for true freedom. Lead us into your service, God, and into worship of you. Do so even now as we continue in worship and in the celebration of communion. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And we do get to continue in our worship with the celebration of communion. And when we come to celebrate communion, we celebrate the greatest exodus of all, the greatest time of setting us free that has ever come, which is when Jesus came and lived his exodus-shaped life up to and including death on a cross so that we can be free to serve and worship God. And so we regularly come together and we take of the bread 
and we take of the cup to remember that this is Christ's body given to us. And this is the blood of the new covenant given to us so that we may walk in the Lord's presence and goodness and grace forever.